receiving a nice warm welcome this morning. See you, Pastor Jay. All right. Good morning, church family. Is God with us? Amen. We are Graham Emanuel. And I just want to say quickly before we start, I am so encouraged that in the middle of summer, uh, we've been getting to these Sundays and you all have continued to come and to prioritize church uh, even during the summer. Summer is a great time for a change of pace. It's a great time for family and for trips and special times that we should take advantage of. But there is no such thing as vacation from the family of God and from the house of God. And I just want to say, I want to commend you guys and, and encourage you in that. Uh, thank you for prioritizing the gathering of believers as a local church. That in itself is a testimony. Uh, when people come in in the middle of summer, it's not always normal to see the full congregation uh, come and attend. So that is a great way that we glorify God together. Let's get ready to study God's word but let's begin with a word of prayer. And as I open us up with prayer, even though as pastor I am praying for us, I want to encourage all of us to take time between us and the Lord to pray as well. So let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful summer that you have given us the warm sunshine, the dry weather, the cool breeze in the morning. These are wonderful things that are enjoyable, and we know that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you. May those things be a reminder of your goodness and even of your mercy, that even though we're a sinful world full of sinful people, that you still give good things to us on this world. May you help us this morning as we open your word. May you soften our heart. May you prepare our soul to receive what you have ordained for us in scripture this morning, because the greatest good that you have given us is your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, real quick, could I have the mic turned down just a little bit? Soften it just a bit. So you may not be aware of this, but uh, we actually had an elder at our church climb a mountain this past week. Isn't that amazing? Chris Haugen, one of our elders, climbed a mountain with his daughter, Aaliyah, and with his mother, who set a record for uh, oldest woman, I believe, to summit Mount Rainier. Uh, I know, that's worth a round of applause. Absolutely. And it was amazing to talk with Chris just about all the preparation that went into him climbing that mountain. All the endurance, all the training, and even all of those months of preparation when he went to actually summit the peak, the amount of focus it took to put one step in front of the other, to climb that mountain bit by bit, to keep your eye on the goal, to remember your training, and to gradually ascend that peak. It was just amazing hearing him explain all the things that went into summiting Mount Rainier. You should ask him about it. But what caught me the most about that conversation earlier this week was actually what he had to say at the end of our conversation. Because at the end of our conversation, we started talking about our spiritual walk, the spiritual climb that we have as believers before we get to heaven where we are being sanctified and where we are spiritually growing and what that entails. And he said something which I totally agreed with and that I want to share with you all that he said that his walk with the Lord, that it changed for the better 
when he realized the importance of what he called gospel living. He said that just as he had to train and prepare to ascend that mountain, that even in his own walk with the Lord, he, he realized the importance of gospel living in his faith. And we actually have a slide that shows that. Gospel living, when we use that phrase, he didn't invent that word. Other authors and pastors have used this phrase, gospel living. And it's referring to everything that we've looked at in Colossians chapter 2, referring to the importance of depending on Christ for our spiritual growth. The idea that we must associate ourselves as being in Christ and by faith every day, reminding ourselves that we are crucified with Christ and dead to sin, but that we are also raised with Christ and made to new life in order to obey him. That recognition of being in Christ by depending on his death and resurrection every day for our daily walk, that is what Chris meant by gospel living. And that's exactly what Paul has been getting at in the first half of Colossians chapter 2. But when Christians are not aware of that, when they don't recognize their need to, by faith, depend on Christ in his death and resurrection for their walk with the Lord, Christians tend to fall into one of two slippery slopes. The first slippery slope that Christians often fall into is one of apathy, where they recognize that they have been saved by grace, they remember that time years ago when they were saved, and they just completely coast spiritually for the rest of their life. They know that, their grace, that God's grace covers all their sins, and so they have no desire to obey, no desire to worship, no desire to be part of the local church, but calling themselves Christians, they're either infants who have never moved on from milk to meat, or they might be deceiving themselves and they were never Christians at all because they live a life that falls into apathy. But the second slippery slope for Christians who are never taught the need for them to be sanctified by gospel living, by associating themselves with Christ's death and resurrection, the second pitfall or slippery slope when they don't realize that is not apathy, but legalism. They say, well, if I just do more, if I follow these rules, if I obey these regulations, if I do the things that are trendy with the other moms or with this Facebook group or with the other dads or, or, or what the new hot book is out of, of how to obey in this specific way, how, how, how to follow this new trend, how to do these things as a way of trying to please God. And if we do these things, often non-biblical things, things that are never actually commanded, Christians will use that as a means to try to grow themselves spiritually. So apathy and legalism for Christians who don't know the importance of gospel living tend to be the two pitfalls that they fall into. And today we're going to specifically look at legalism because maybe you, as I talked about legalism, you realize that you're actually in that boat, that you have come to realize that you don't really know how to grow spiritually, so you just try to do the specific fads and trends and obey in the unique ways that you see other people doing, and you hope that that will please God and make you better than you were previously. If that's you, Paul is going to talk about that this morning 
in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 where you'll remember that in Colossians chapter 2, as we've divided it on the screen, Paul is talking about how we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the first half of chapter 2, he is talking about the sufficiency of Christ. How we should always see ourselves as in Christ. We are circumcised in Him. We are crucified with Him. We are buried in Him. We are raised with Him. He's pointing to Christ as the means by which we spiritually grow. That is what we mean by gospel living. That daily by faith association with Christ's death and resurrection to die to sin and live unto obedience. But now in the second half of chapter 2, starting with this morning's message, he's now going to focus on the insufficiency of legalism, of depending by your own effort, your own obedience as a means of pleasing God. Whether it's the things that you perform, the things that you do on Sunday, the lifestyle that you develop for yourself, depending on those things other than Christ, Paul is going to point out the insufficiency of doing so. And he's going to do that in verses 16 and 17. So read along silently with me as I read out loud, starting in verse 16 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, based on everything that he had to say about Christ, this is what he's going to say now. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The big idea for this morning is a summary of those two verses and a summary of everything that we've talked about in our introduction up to this point, which is that you cannot walk in Christ by following religious regulations. You can't do it. The way that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as Paul mentions in chapter 1 of Colossians, You cannot do it by following religious regulations. When I say religious regulations, this is what I mean. Do you notice at the beginning of verse 16 where Paul says this phrase of festivals and new moons and Sabbath? That combination of those three words occurs often in the Old Testament. And in every instance where they occur in the Old Testament, they are always a reference to the Jewish regulations. We have some examples of this on the screen that you can look at. You can write down the references if you'd like. There's about a dozen of them at least. I gave you three. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 31. And then Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 33. These are all examples of references to the Jewish system of rituals being described as one of feasts and new moons and Sabbaths. So because of that, Paul, in this instance, he is referencing specifically Jewish rituals. That's what he's attacking in this verse. For the rest of chapter 2, he's going to be attacking different examples of legalism that are all going to be under the same general big idea of what we have this morning. But today, he's focusing on religious rituals specifically as they relate 
to the Jews. Because even though he's writing to a Gentile city in the Roman Empire, most of the Gentile cities that Paul wrote to had a population of Jewish people. And the churches that he would write to would be made up of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And one of the most common problems that Paul had to deal with in these churches were Jewish people. They were called Judaizers. The letter to the Galatians is the most famous example of this. These Judaizers would try to convince other Christians that now that they were saved, the way for them to grow spiritually was by following Jewish regulations. And that same thing apparently was also happening in Colossae, which is why Paul makes it very obvious at the beginning of this verse that he says no one should pass judgment on you according to these physical things, these new moons and feasts and Sabbaths, these regulations of the Jewish system, but even though he's likely referring to the Jewish system in this verse, all of these things, new moons, special days, festivals and feasts, they applied to all religions of that time. That even the Greco-Romans, even secular myths and religion, they also followed these basic religious systems involving holidays and the lunar system and, and special holy days. So it would apply for everyone, even though he's probably referencing specifically the Jewish system, and it would also apply for us today. Because even though we may not be Jews living under a lunar calendar or a Jewish system of rituals, we still in this world fall prey to trends and ideas and different tribes of people who convince us that the way to grow in Christ is by doing things other than depending by faith on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even amongst Christians. That is very common. All of these things would be an example of what Paul earlier in Colossians called the elementary principles of the world. That's what that phrase means, elementary principles of the world. We're talking about earthly things, physical things, tangible, uh, down below things, and not Christ, not heavenly things. So for the next two verses, Paul is going to get at that big idea of how we cannot walk in Christ by following religious regulations, which is going to lead us to our point number one, which says this, that do not evaluate Christians walk according to religious regulations. This is the first point because that's what Paul says in verse 16. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in these following things. In food, in drink, in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. We're going to break down the different examples that Paul gives there and find the parallels that we have here for us today. Because the first one, food and drink, was very prevalent amongst Jewish people, especially between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That yes, in the law, God had given some foods that were clean and other foods that were unclean, but Acts chapter 10 shows us that God had now made all food clean. There was no longer such a divide between kosher food and non-kosher food. But even so, after the Jewish exile, where they were taken out of the promised land, 
forced to live in secular places, which, by the way, that's how these Jews ended up in places like Colossae and Galatia. There became a special emphasis on showing one's holiness by fasting, and actually even by not eating meat, only being a vegetarian. There's no command in Scripture that demands that God's people show their holiness by being vegetarians, and we all say praise the Lord for that, right? But, and likely actually based on the example set by Daniel, who at the beginning of the Babylonian exile, he chose only to eat vegetables instead of the king's meat. It wasn't because he thought meat was bad. It was because he didn't want to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. He wanted to show that his provision came from the Lord, that which was grown, and not the meat that came from the king's stable and and his livestock. But the Pharisees, after that time, they falsely latched onto that and saw that as an example of piety a way to prove your goodness while you are in exile outside of the promised land, and perhaps even a way to try to coax God into defeating your enemies and allowing you to return to the promised land. So it became popular for Pharisees to promote fasting and the only eating of vegetables, so much so that Jesus, in his sermons, he had to criticize these people who would make a show of how weak they were from the lack of eating in their fasting because they were using that to try to show their holiness. They were trying to show that they were more spiritually mature than others as a result of not eating meat and as a result of fasting. And Jesus himself even criticized that, and especially the outward display of that. In the same way, the drinking of wine, back then wine was a necessity because the fermentation of wine and alcohol sanitized the water in a society where there was no system of sanitation other than boiling water. That became a basic staple of healthy living, drinking this fermented drink. But even back then, 2,000 years ago, it was popular to show one's devotion to God by not drinking the the fruit of the vine, not drinking alcohol. We don't see commands of that in Scripture, but we see examples of that in Scripture. The closest thing that we'd see in Scripture would be those who take uh, the Nazarene vow to to not drink any alcohol. That was seen as a special thing, that, that someone loved God so much that they weren't even going to drink alcohol. And These were the ways that people, through eating and through drinking, they would try to, by their own energy and their own effort, make themselves more godly. Yet these are things that man has come up with. This is not what God has commanded. In fact, God actually commands the opposite. All throughout the New Testament, the Bible makes it clear that we should not put our trust in what we eat or what we drink in order to impact what is true in our heart. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, for example. We have several examples here. I won't have time to read all of them. But in Hebrews chapter 13, it even warns against not being led away by diverse and strange teaching, which focuses on what? On food, which has no benefit. Look at what Jesus has to say. Uh, Jesus says at uh, the bottom reference, Luke chapter 12, verse 23, for life is more than food. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 says that food will not commend us to God. 
you might think that, well, that's all well and good for Jewish people 2,000 years ago, but we're Gentiles and we enjoy our red meat and there's no problem with that. I want to challenge you with the recognition that you today live in a society where you have more control over what you eat than anyone else, and there is more content on what you should and should not eat than any other time in history. Whether it's a diet that you should follow, whether you should be eating certain kinds of food or different food allergies or, or different approaches to uh, what should be incorporated in your meals, everyone always has a different idea of what you should follow. And it's not wrong to have preferences of food, and it's not wrong to make healthy decisions for yourself with your food, but it is wrong to think that those preferences are means by which we grow closer to God. And it would also be wrong to oppose others and commend others to say that in order for them to grow closer to God, they have to establish themselves with this diet, or they have to stop eating this kind of food or that kind of food, that they can't eat sugar anymore, or they can't eat gluten anymore, or they can't eat simple carbs anymore, that if you do that, that that means that you are drifting from God. Instead, what our attitude should be is instead of seeing these foods as a means by which we grow closer to God, we should instead see food as a means by which we worship God. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the famous verse says that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to do it for the glory of God. So live with health, live as if your body is the temple of the Lord because it is, but this world has made diets and food trends a religion unto themselves. And people can easily identify themselves with a diet more than they do with what they believe about Jesus Christ. Even in Christianity, that can be true. Don't make food your identity. Don't make diet and food choices your lifestyle so much that it crowds out the gospel living that we are called to, to abide with Christ. The same would go for drinking. I'll let you guys know that in my family, we have made the decision not to drink alcohol. I grew up, I was raised in a family where we did not drink alcohol. I've made that decision for myself partially because I want to honor my parents in the way that I was raised. But also because for me personally, I have decided that I have enough spiritual battles that I am waging in my heart that I have decided not to engage in that for myself. And that in our household, we would also not engage with that. That's a decision that I have the freedom to make because we have freedom in Christ. But it would be wrong of me to say that I do that because the Bible commands Christians not to drink. That would be wrong. It commands Christians not to be drunk, but it doesn't command them not to drink. Jesus drank. And it would also be wrong for me to suggest to you that if you drink, that you are less holier than I am. Because then I would be falling into the same trap of what Paul is addressing here in Colossians, where I am defining the spiritual life according to physical things. Where instead, I'm going to not drink because I want to honor the Lord. And when you drink, recognize that also as an opportunity to honor the Lord and have it dictate the way that you use alcohol in your personal life and in your home. These are all the things that is being pointed to 
with food and drink because as you see Jesus says in John, he is the drink that we should be thirsting after. He is the food that we actually need. Good food when we eat it should be a reminder that Jesus is the food that we should be consuming on. When we drink, whether it's alcohol or Diet Pepsi as the Lord intended, we should, uh, just kidding, uh, we should drink those things in remembrance that Jesus is the well of living water from which we will never thirst again. It's the physical things that point to Jesus as the true solution to our spiritual growth. Let's move on to some more examples. Not just food and drink, but this is what he says next or in regard to a festival. A festival in the Bible is the same word as a feast. And I want you to turn with me quickly to Leviticus chapter 23. You'll notice that I have you turn often when we have the opportunity to the beginning of the Bible. We call this the Pentateuch. Pentateuch refers to the first five books of Scripture, specifically Leviticus in regards the rituals and systems of the sacrificial code, the specific laws that God gave to regulate his people. But we're not going to go through all of them, but in Leviticus 23, this is the chapter where God lays out the calendar of festivals for his people. And I'm going to read the first couple of verses in 23, where it says that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. There's seven of them. You'll have an opportunity to write down the seven. I have the list up here for you. If you don't have time to write them all down, just have Leviticus 23 written down. Maybe incorporate it in your devotions this week. And look at not just the festivals that God ordains, but also the reason why he gave those festivals, whether it's of atonement, of unleavened bread, of first fruits, of weeks. Every single festival that God gave was meant to be a reminder of what he had done for his people. But instead, by man's sinfulness, the Jews, really all religious people at this time in their own religions, but also the Jews in their Jewish religion, they had turned these festivals into a means of showing their holiness to God and to other people. Whether through the wealth in which they would make their sacrifices, um, the, 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 the piety, uh, the, the, the things that they would go without in order to observe these days, Or even in Colossae, the fact that they would even observe them at all. If someone grew up a Gentile and became a Christian, they wouldn't be familiar with the Feast of Booths. Are they now as Christians supposed to be good Christians by adopting these festivals? Paul says no. Because the point of the festivals in Colossians was the same point of the festivals in the Old Testament which was not to be a way for man to show God how good man was, but for a chance for God to show to his people how good God was to them. The festivals were always meant to be symbols of God's grace. They were never means of holiness, not even back in the Old Testament. 
They were never the means by which the Israelites grew closer to God. It was always the same as it is today. It was always by faith in the promises of God. The festivals were a reminder of the need for their faith and the grace that God had shown them. And when you see the phrase new moon, for example, the Jewish calendar was based on the moon. We live in a calendar system that is based on the sun. When you see new moons mentioned in Scripture, it is almost always in reference to the festivals. The festivals would be coordinated around the first of the month, and the first of the month would correspond with a new lunar uh, cycle. So a new moon would signify a new month and perhaps even a new festival. That's what Paul is referring to here. But you'll also notice that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, which you can turn back there now if you'd like, but you will notice that he also ends with the word Sabbaths. And if you remember from Leviticus chapter 23, you would see that the first ceremony, the first festival that is mentioned by God is actually the Sabbath. Shabbat, as the Jewish people still call it today, the last day of the week. This was the day that God rested in the garden after creation. It was the day that he had ordained for his people after he had brought them out of Egypt. The purpose was to, just like the festivals and just like the food, to, to, to serve as a symbol of God's goodness to them not as an opportunity for the people to show their goodness to God, but for God to remind them of his goodness to them. <clears throat> because in Egypt, they had to work. They had to toil. They were slaves. And by bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land, God had given them rest from their slavery, which was an illustration of the greater exodus that God was giving them through Jesus Christ out of our slavery from sin into a life of grace where Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light because he has done the work for us on the cross. Therefore, we don't have to do works in order to prove our holiness to God. Our holiness before God is proved to him based on the righteousness of Jesus as our substitute. And the Sabbath is a reminder that we have rest from our work as a result of God's grace. But also recognize this, that of the Ten Commandments that are given in Scripture, Nine of them are repeated and reaffirmed in the New Testament, except for keeping the Sabbath. In fact, not only is it not reaffirmed in the New Testament, it's actually stated here in verse 16 that no one should judge you on whether or not you follow a Sabbath or what day you follow the Sabbath. Today, some denominations will claim that Sunday has magically become the new Sabbath, and that's not based on any scripture. That's based on their own tradition. Stay away from uh, people who try to convince you that Sunday has transformed into the new Sabbath. The Bible doesn't teach us that. In the same way, denominations will make their identity not on Christ's righteousness on the cross on their behalf, but they'll make their identity the fact that they're keeping the Sabbath on Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists would be the most famous example of this. They are choosing to make central they put it even in their name that their holiness comes not from Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf, but on the fact that they choose to worship 
on a specific day, a day that God no longer holds them to. So for us, when we meet together as a church, we don't do it to fulfill some kind of regulation of the Sabbath. We do it to worship God in the same way that we should be worshiping on any day of the week. Because if we're in Jesus Christ, every day is a Sabbath for us, spiritually at least. And when we do take a nap on Sunday afternoon, when we do take those times to have vacations and to rest, just like when we eat and when we drink, when we celebrate holidays, <clears throat> we can see them as reminders of God's goodness to us instead of us trying to prove our goodness to God. I have more to say here. I have like 20 more minutes of sermon, but we're going to try to get done in two minutes. Let's go to the second point because there's so much here. The second point takes us to verse 17. And we've heard, you've heard me say this already. Point two is that we should understand religious regulations as an illustration of the gospel. These earthly things, what we saw in the Old Testament, were always, from their beginning, intended to be memorials to point to Jesus. So now, whether we drink alcohol or don't drink alcohol, whether we drink coffee or caffeine or we drink, don't drink coffee or caffeine, whatever we do, it doesn't bring us closer to God. It is just meant to be a symbol and illustration of what God has done for us. This is what's said in verse 17 where Paul calls these things a shadow of the things to come, but that the substance belongs to Christ. The King James translates it pretty well, where the substance of Christ is actually the word body. It's like you're walking down the sidewalk and the sun is setting, and your shadow sticks way out ahead of you, but it's your body that is casting the shadow. These festivals, these Sabbaths, these new moons that took place in the Old Testament— they were merely shadows <clears throat> from the future that were being cast by Christ himself. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law, it doesn't mean that he's come to uh, complete the law, check off the law, and then get rid of the law. It means that he's actually adding substance to the law. He's filling the law like one fills a cup with water or like a shadow is filled with the body is how Jesus describes his role. All of these things, these earthly things, these matters of conviction and areas of our life that we choose for ourselves, we have the freedom to do so, but we must remember that the only reason why we have the freedom to do so is because of Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf, by dying as a sinner on our behalf, and by raising on the third day. We should not judge others for it, for their personal convictions that are outside of what God has commanded. In the same way, we should recognize all of our personal decisions as means to worship God through his son, Jesus Christ. We must recognize that the way that God sanctifies his people is not through food and drink, is not through religions, is not through festivals, is not through regulations, but only by faith, depending in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that every sermon, every Sunday, until we become a church, till I become a pastor, until we become Christians in this world that embrace it as part of our daily walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the good things that you've given us.
But Lord, we recognize that they are just shadows. Um, the holidays we celebrate, the food we eat, choices that we make in our life, they are just pictures of, of your son, Jesus Christ. They point to you. They are ways that we can worship you, Lord. But God, by your grace, may you make us remember that Christ is central, that only Christ is sufficient for us to grow spiritually. Only he is sufficient for us to walk in a manner worthy of you. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, thanks, church family. Uh, gospel class afterwards. Stick around for that and have a great rest of your day. Go in peace.